if the last few months have been a temptation of thinking we would have warm weather, and therefore a gracious act of God, uh, the last two days of sub-zero, 40-degree wind chill weather surely must be an indicator of His wrath. And I will tell you, uh, goodness, I did not know that cold could make you angry because of how it burns your face, how it freezes your nostrils, and how it tightens up your behind. Uh, I, I did not know this was possible, but I have discovered this. In, in all seriousness, I'm glad that you are all safe and sound who are here with us. I, I just checked a moment ago. I don't think I've ever really done this since I've been up here, but I'm now looking at the cameras because there's at least 66 for those of you who are here, 66 online users who are on our YouTube page, which means that's family, so there's at least well over 100 of you that are present. So thank you for being here. I want to say to you, you are uh, no less spiritual than the locals who have made it out uh, in person today, and so uh, the blessing of technology to be able to make uh, Sunday happen. Uh, Justine and I had the privilege of being able to uh, being warmer weather uh, this last week, we were in Phoenix, and we were there for some denominational uh, meetings, and in particular, we were there for a, uh, about 40 to 50 pastors had been invited from our little denomination to address what has become a uh, leadership crisis of developing and training up uh, new pastors. Um, and so myself, Cole Robinson, over from uh, uh, Bethel, our sister church, uh, Daniel Rodriguez, our district minister who's been here, uh, Christian Coase, if you remember him, uh, from uh, Redemption Church in Owatonna, uh, Minnesota. He had preached here uh, in the spring of last year. Uh, Jesse Swears would be another, if you are familiar with that name. And so I want to give you, before we get into our passage this morning, I want to give you a quick update. I think that's good to do um, every once in a while, kind of what's happening in our broader church family. The truth is, that what I just said about there being a leadership crisis is actually not unique to our, our little denominational family. Um, that is across the board in U.S. churches that uh, there's a lack of, of up-and-coming pastors. So let me give you, and not just pastors, I would say both men and women going into ministry. Um, some of the things that we talked about was, I don't know if you're aware of this, the average age of pastors in the United States right now is 60 years old. And so that means that there's a significant number that are higher than, than 60. Um, and we are missing about that, that those in their 30s and 40s. That seems to be where the gap is. Um, and so uh, this is the highest it's been within the last 40 years, um, that the average is this high. And what you end up having is a cycle of pastors, just to let you in on kind of the pastoral world here for a moment, um, you have a cycle of, a vicious cycle that is happening where you have uh, pastors who did not plan for retirement um, in their 30s. Uh, they, maybe they were in the parsonage and they never planned financially well, and now um, they can't retire because financially they, they, they just can't, they have to have a job. And then you have churches, on the other hand, are going, we, we need new and fresh leadership. Um, and so there's that, just that cycle that's happening, and I keep hearing these stories over and over again. Uh, so the average age of pastors is increasing, um, and if that's happening, ministry, pastoral ministry, is a contracting uh, industry. Uh, church growth, churches are being planted, but they're not keeping up with the rate of our population growth. And so with that, uh, there are fewer job opportunities. 
Not only that, there's also less interest uh, amongst younger people for a variety, a variety of reasons to go into ministry. Uh, we talked about when we gathered, uh, typically uh, millennials, younger millennials and Gen Z as well are, are going, well, I look at the pay uh, of what it means to be a pastor versus if I go into business or something else. And so, and so I'm hearing that more and more, that people want to not sacrifice uh, for pastoral ministry. I should tell you this, um, being at Bethesda Church, uh, to our elders, to our deacons, thank you, because uh, you have, I believe that you have been very, very faithful to the words of First Timothy um, about taking care of the laborer, and so uh, Bethesda takes care of her pastors. This is not necessarily true for other, many other churches in the United States. Um, because of people's church experiencing church uh, problems and conflict. They go, why would I want to enter into something like that? And so uh, we talked about all the reasons why uh, there's this, these groups of younger people who don't want to go into ministry. Uh, the rise of the nuns, not N-U-N-S, the N-O-N-E-S uh, people uh, who simply are, grew up in church um, and then walked away and they don't have no religious affiliation. Doesn't mean they're not spiritual, doesn't mean they're atheists, but it just means that, that they're not connected to anything. In our own backyard, if you want to talk about Bethesda's own context, you know that uh, where we're at right now is we have been in the search for a youth pastor. I, I can tell you this is, this is true. We've had, I think we've mentioned publicly, we've had five to, to six uh, people we've narrowed it down to, uh, that we had narrowed it down to last time Brad was up here. Uh, but we received a total of 24 resumes. And the truth is, this is not just for us. I've heard this at Mount Olivet. Um, as they've been searching for a pastor, a, a, a chunk of those people are Nigerian princes from Africa who want to give their resume out and want to get their visa so they can come over to the state. So that doesn't mean we had 24 viable candidates. That means we actually only have a handful. And so when you get someone who's good, you want to hold on to them. That makes sense because this is the climate where we find ourselves in. And so as we met to address this crisis, I think I walked away. There was two big things that I saw us uh, address. Uh, one, we were addressing our educational and training institutions uh, and things that need to change and things that need to be adjusted so that we can produce good conservative evangelical pastors. Uh, that is not too much to ask. Uh, men and women, uh, men who, who are called to be pastors, women who are called to a variety of ministry areas as well uh, in service of the local church and beyond uh, to have a high view of the scriptures. Uh, secondly, we also looked at um, ways we could learn strategies on how to train up ministers in our own context. I think the biggest thing I walked away from was learning from other pastors. What are you doing to tap people on the shoulder to, to raise within your own ranks uh, future ministers? And so um, the truth is for me, if you look at my own story, before I ever entered into ministry, um, I, I, w I did five internships. At one church, I was like the intern they couldn't get rid of. And so by the time I showed up here to be your pastor, um, I had looked underneath the hood of three different churches, saw how they did ministry. And so I'm not just working with a cut and paste of where I was before. I'm working with a variety of, under, uh, a variety of ways of doing church that has helped me in my current context. I am who I am because people tapped me on the shoulder when I was in my early 20s. And so when you have uh, things like what we've done, we've had, we've had one intern here. I hope to have more in the future. It's so good. It breathes life into the church. And 
Uh, I'm a beneficiary of that as well. So I want to give you just a few things, just as I'm hearing about these national conversations, I want to give to us four brief things. It's kind of like a mini sermon before the sermon um, that, that we can I, take away and hold on to as we think about our own context. I think the first thing is the obvious. Can we commit to, when we think of our denomination, that we would pray for places like Tabor College? That is, that is really our institution. Um, I am someone, as I have seen in our culture, evangelical culture, uh, people who, who built, uh, build up a cult of personality. Um, I want to be an institution builder, uh, someone who fights for our institutions. Uh, Tabor College is our uh, institution. We have at least one student there. Several of us are alumni who have been there, and we should pray for that, that school. I think a second one is what I've already mentioned, is that we would uh, look within our own ranks for potential leaders, call out the called, tap the shoulders of those who are here. There might be some of you who are in this room or some of you who are online uh, who we may need to say a gospel goodbye to in the future uh, because uh, you may need to go off to get further education or you may need to go onto the mission field or maybe God is calling you into pastoral ministry or any other kind of ministry that, that is available. Um, we should be looking at each other. I was raised with the mentality that if you were going to be a pastor, you needed to be called to ministry because ministry presents challenges, though it is a fulfilling job. Um, but you need to know you are called by God. Otherwise, you should go do something else. Let us call out those who are here. Uh, a third thing, I, I was just with our sold out students uh, last Sunday night, that we would value our high schoolers, y'all. Um, they are not the next generation. They are the now generation. Um, they, they are not just the future, our future at Bethesda, but here's what comes to my mind. They are studying biology, calculus, and physics in the classroom. They are very capable uh, of being given uh, responsibilities right here in local church. And so let's look at our own high schoolers in our midst. So if you're a high schooler, I just want to say, if you're here, if you're watching online, you're supposed to be here. Uh, we value you, and, and uh, we want you to be equipped to serve the Lord in whatever way he has for you. I think the last thing, there's always more I can mention, is that we would keep a watch over ourselves. There is no such thing as private, hi private hidden sin. All sin ends up impacting our relationships. That we would be the kind of people that present the local church as something that is lovely and is worth fighting for. Not a place of division, but it is a picture of the glory that is yet to come when we see Jesus, Jesus face to face. Um, are we the kind of church that, that, that our young people go, yeah, that's what I want to be a part of for the rest of my life? Uh, it begins with you and I uh, who, who fit in that, uh, basically everybody else, that older generation, all the older generations from those who are high school or in college age. And so I want to give that to you. Let's be thinking about leaders even within our own midst. While I was in uh, Phoenix, uh, I got to catch up with a good friend of mine named Cole Peck. Uh, Cole is a PhD student at uh, Southwestern Seminary. I've known him for almost 10 years, and uh, he knows Hebrew way better than I do. That's what your Old Testament is written in. And he, he and I sat down. I said, hey, I'm doing a series through Genesis 1 through 3. Let me tell you how I'm reading some of these passages. 
you can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, help me out, brother. And so he said, let's talk about it. And we talked about how I was going to be speaking out of Genesis 1 this morning. And we talked about how there's, there have been some debates surrounding Genesis 1 uh, that can, can lead us to, to miss what Genesis 1 is all about, to miss the point of Genesis 1. And he said something that stuck out to me that I wanted to share with you. Genesis 1, creation, these six days that were given of creation, they are God's resume to his people. I mean, if you ever think about that, six days of creation being God's resume to us. It shows us distinctly who Israel's God is, what he's capable of, and what he can do in our own lives. See, if you're new to the faith, uh, you may not know that not all Christians, Bible-believing Christians who believe the Bible is inspired, the inspired Word of God, that it's unerring in, in facts, in scientific details, in historical details, not just the, the, the theology, disagree over some of the aspects of Genesis 1 and how to interpret it. Uh, Kent Hughes, in his commentary, I recommend Kent Hughes to you, he's wrote a book called Disciplines of a Godly Man, uh, Godly Man that myself and a few of our uh, younger guys went through last year. Um, he talks about how some of the greats in church history have had various views on how to approach this passage. There are some like John Calvin and Louis Burkhoff, um, some great reform names, who have seen Genesis 1 as six 24-hour solar days in which God created everything. Perhaps you're familiar with that. If you go further beyond uh, the 20th century, even before the 16th century, you'll see that there are other conversations that were taking place. And the question was, amongst others, was why in the world, if God is so powerful, would he need six days to create everything? And so you've got guys like uh, Augustine and Aquinas, other names like Charles Hodge, B.B. Warfield, J. Gresham Machen, and Francis Schaeffer, um, and, and said maybe God did not do everything in, in six, 20, uh, six days, 144 hours. Let's not limit God. So you can see how there have been different ways of, of looking at this. And so if you've gotten into these discussions, you know that there's, there's different perspectives. How should we approach this? I want to give you a, a few ways of how we should think about Genesis 1. I think I've said this to you before, we should think about the difference between primary and secondary doctrines. Uh, when you see how godly, loving Christians can differ in their interpretation of Genesis 1, I think it gives me pause uh, to be humble and to be careful that my interpretation doesn't rise uh, to a litmus test of orthodoxy in the way that the Bible doesn't require I would place your particular view on Genesis 1 in the secondary role, kind of like our millennial views. So you go to Revelation 20, you're going to see that there's a, there's a statement where uh, the scriptures talk about how, how Christ will reign for a thousand years. And some people are premillennial, believe that Christ will come back and that he'll reign for a thousand years. I, I would fit into that group. There's others who are amillennial and they would say that the millennial reign isn't literal. It's just a, a blanket statement to refer to God's reign. There's others who are post-millennial. That third group who would say uh, the thousand-year reign will happen. Things will get better all the way until Christ returns at the end of the thousand years. And if you're familiar with that lame joke, some will say, um, I'm, 
uh, premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, I don't know. Um, I'm panmillennial, and I believe that everything will pan out in the end. And so that's, that's one way of looking at it. And so uh, I think the same thing is true here. Let us be careful that we keep the main things the main things. What is key with Genesis 1? Is that you believe that God created everything. You believe he created everything out of nothing. He was first. There's nothing that existed before him. He submits to nothing. He is the Lord. Believing in things like that he created everything in his image. Uh, or he created man and woman in his image. Not just men, but also women are in his image. Uh, certain key things like this. I'm going to share with you my views, but this is what I'm trying to say to you, is that I, I can say this. I can break bread with a six-day creationist. Uh, I can break bread also with someone who is a theistic evolutionist, who believes that God orchestrated evolution to make all things happen. Uh, I, I would disagree with that person, just so you know where I stand on that. I would disagree with where, where my brother is or sister would be on that. But the main thing I would want to ask him would be, do you believe that Adam was a historical figure? There's a histor historical aspect to this that does really matter. You, you must believe the historicity of certain aspects here. For example, that Adam is a real person. Why do I say this? Jesus believes that Adam was a real person. But also when you read Romans 5, Paul connects the first Adam to the second Adam. The first Adam brought sin into the world. But the second Adam, Christ Jesus, has redeemed us of that sin. You get rid of Genesis 2 and make it myth, you have a big problem with Romans 5. So be careful there. But you see what I'm saying here? Make sure that you keep the main things the main thing, and that there are secondary things that we can have disagreements on. I think it will become more clear as I go what, what these primary and secondary things are. A, a second thing that we ought to understand when we approach Genesis 1 is to understand that you and I are reading Genesis 1 with American lenses on. Uh, you and I live in light of the fundamentalist, modernist controversy of the 1920s. We all know about that, right? No, I, I understand. You, you probably didn't wake up this morning thinking about the 1920s. Uh, but if you grew up and going to maybe, I don't know if James Valley teaches this, talks about this. I know that in my Christian school growing up, we heard about the Scopes Monkey Trial of 1925, where a teacher, John Scopes, started teaching evolution in the classroom, and there ended up being a court case in which the famous lawyer, presidential candidate, William Jennings Bryan, debated for the creation side. And this gained national attention. And ever since then, there has been this, this creation versus evolution debate. There has been this science versus religion uh, divide that we tend to think in, uh, in these categories. And I cannot help but wonder, the reason why I point that out to you, is when you and I approach the text, in light of that controversy that's impacted conservative, fundamentalists, conservatives, evangelicals, all the way to the present, do we miss what the author of Genesis is actually trying to talk about? What he's actually communicating to us? And so my hope is that we will put on an ancient Near Eastern lens. And let's ask the questions that the Bible is trying to answer. Let me correct myself. The Bible knows what it's answering. It's not trying to answer. Let us answer the questions the Bible itself seeks to answer. And let's see how Genesis 1 presents Israel's God in contrast 
to the gods of the Egyptians, the Mesopotamians, the Babylonians. And I think you'll see something that you may not have seen before. And so with that being said, I want you to think about this. Old Testament uh, scholar John Sailhammer um, said that we should be- read Genesis in light of Sinai. Here's what I mean. In the Exodus story, uh, Israel is brought out of Exodus after 10 plagues. We'll look at all of this in, at a later date in, in, in March, April, and May when we go through Exodus. But God delivers his people, takes them out of uh, Egypt in the Exodus. They cross the Red Sea, and they go into uh, the wilderness, and they go, into, uh, go to Mount Sinai. And it is there where God speaks to them. He gives them the law. He speaks to them not only about their origins, Genesis is a book of origins. How did we get here? How was man created? How did sin enter the world? How did the, the, the Israelites come to be through Abraham's family? But God also introduces himself to them and who he is for them. Think about this. Think about Genesis 1 through 3, and you're learning about this as you're sitting at the foot, perhaps, of Mount Sinai. Genesis 1 would come off a lot differently, wouldn't it? When you consider the original audience, God is saying to Israel, in comparison to the fertility gods of Egypt, in comparison to the idols that you've laid your eyes on for the last 400 years, in comparison to all of these other religions, let me show you my resume. Let me show you what I have done in these six days of creation and how I stand supreme over all of these counterfeits. And then put your trust in me. We know how the story goes. They didn't put their trust in him. But imagine if they would have. Last week I introduced to you the painter and his canvas. God creates everything. He is the creator. And his canvas is that formless and void earth. And now God puts color on the canvas. Look at verse 3 with me. I'm going to read the first day of creation. I won't reread all of them for you, but I want to show you something that comes out in the first day uh, that Jana did such a great job for us. I want to show you something in this first day, features that you will see of what the text is doing. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. If you've ever put Ikea furniture together to fulfill your wife's dream for your children's rooms, you know how powerful this verse is. Unlike me, God did not need a manual to put together his creation. Uh, Unlike me, he did not need tools or parts that already existed God only needed his voice to speak creation into existence, to speak light into existence. Over the last several years, I have noticed that there is, within our broader culture, a way of thinking. Some have called it the power of positive thinking. Um, You see this in athletes and how they speak. You have maybe heard language uh, like this, where an athlete wins a trophy and says, I willed my dreams into existence or I spoke it into existence. I expect to hear things like that from the world, uh, this, 
maybe idealized view of my own capability and power. It becomes uncanny and almost strange when I hear Christians doing the same thing. I have been, uh, my usual approach with you is to not name specific groups or people uh, that I, I think we should be watchful of in Scripture. I want to show you their ideas so you don't just see it in a particular group, but you might see the sin issue even in yourself. I want to name a specific group this morning. Uh, some have called this movement the New Apostolic Reformation, NAR for short, um, and it's a group that comes out of charismatic and Pentecostal circles, emphasizes signs and wonders, the restoration of offices like uh, New Testament offices like apostles and prophets. We've talked about this um, in the fall. Emphasize fresh revelation, talks about the supernatural power that the Holy Spirit gives us to do uh, His work. And uh, I just want to say, if you've gotten to know me, you know I, I, I seek the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to see him move in Bethesda Church. Uh, sometimes I've referred to myself in the past of a, something of a Bapticostal, where I believe in the Word of God, but I mean, I want to see him move. I want to see, I want to see him do something right now, you know? Uh, but even as I desire uh, a movement of the Holy Spirit, I want to be very careful that we draw the line between who God is versus who we are. And you'll hear some people who will say things like, I have a miracle in my mouth. And I just can't help but think, when you say, I have a miracle in my mouth, that brother, you only have hot air coming from your face. That, that's just the reality of what you're saying. You're, you're just playing pretend because you have forgotten that only God has that kind of authority to speak things into existence. We have none. This is why we pray. How does it go? Oh, yeah, our Father who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. What comes next? Your will be done, not mine. It's not my speaking my will into existence. He who has all power, his will, he speaks it into existence. His will, not ours. His power, not ours. And so when we pray to this creator, let us, let us think deeply, y'all, and see who he is. And when you see who he is in comparison to who we are, doesn't it make sense that we who are made in his image will understand ourselves better? He is the one with power. We're the one who submits to him. And he speaks, God speaks his word. And it is the breath of the spirit through which that word is spoken. Everything God speaks. So every time you see, see how each of those days of creation, day one, right there in verse three, you go on to the next, next one, you see it right there in verse nine and 11 and going forward. I think we are right as Christians to see each speaking of God as a Trinitarian act. And so here's some of those features. We have already named one that you'll see in each of these six days of creation. You'll see how it says, and God said. You'll see that it also will say, God saw the light was good. When he creates, he deems these things good. He has authority as the judge to decide what is right and what is wrong. And when he looks at his creation, he says, it is good. He names creation. So it's not just the light and the darkness. He calls the light day, and he calls the darkness night. Go forward later, and you'll see that as he creates these entities and these things, he names them. He has authority to name. Take that concept, tuck it away, and hold on to it. Because that's going to be important when we see the relationship between Adam and Eve and the authority that Adam has been given to name things and to name 
all the creation that God brings before him. We'll see that in a later week. And you see how each of these days ends with a statement, there was evening and there was morning. And so we have time given in day one here. All of these have that statement, there was evening and morning, except for day seven. We'll see how that's important in just a moment. Something else that's fascinating here is that you'll see there's the structure to the days. Scholars have pointed out how day one through three is kind of like a unit, and day four through six is kind of like a unit. So day one, you have day and night. You have the, you have the day that's given there. Day two, you have the sky and the sea are separated from one another. So if light and darkness are separated from one another, day two, you have sky and sea separated from one another. In day three, you have dry land is separated from the sea. And so day one through three, you have the realms that are made. The realms are formed. And then the fascinating thing is that those three realms are then filled on day four, five, and six. You may not have ever noticed this before, but if you see how there's a relationship between day one through three and day four through six, you'll see how powerful and how deliberate and how God orchestrates everything. This is not the result of some battle amongst the gods as with the Enuma Elish uh, Babylonian myth that mentioned last week. No, God knows what he is doing in these six days of creation. Day one, we have the day and night. But day four, we get the sun, moon, and the stars that go up in the sky at night and in the day. In day two, we have the sky and the sea. But in day five, we have the birds and the fish that go in the sky and the sea. In day, in day six, we have the animals and the humans, and that corresponds to the vegetation and land that has been given on day three. See how this all comes together. And so, Imagine once again, we're sitting at Mount Sinai, and God is showing you this. And he's saying, look what I did. How, how then would you, you, you think about those statues that you had seen in Egypt? You would go, give me a break. This doesn't even compare to who Yahweh, our personal Lord, is for us. Let's keep going here. I've spent a lot of time on day one. Now let's go quickly through the next several days. You could do a sermon on each day. I won't do that to you. Day two, here we go. Day two, in which we have here the separation of waters from the waters. One of the things that you'll notice when you read the six days of creation is that they are from the perspective of someone who's on earth. Um, you're getting the perspective of, what, of what's called phenomenological language. That's, that, that's a 50-cent word to basically describe how things look if you're looking at it from a human perspective. I'll give you an example. Um, the scriptures talk about how the sun rises and the sun sets. Question for you. Does the sun technically rise and set, or does the earth revolve around the sun? Option one or two? Thank you. Okay. We're doing okay. Um, we're awake this morning. So are you wrong, though, to say that the sun rises and that it sets? Of course you're not wrong. And the scriptures are from that perspective. They're from the perspective of earth here. And so keep that in mind. Uh, I point that out to you because some atheists will say, well, how dare you say that the scriptures are inerrant because they clearly err. 
Look, look how foolish they are in thinking that the sun rises and that it sets. And no, it's simply a way of speaking about reality from a human perspective. You are not wrong to believe that your Bible is unerring. It's speaking the way it wants to speak, not according to a 21st century standard. God rules over the heavens. He rules over the sea as well. This is one God who does this, not a plurality of gods who is supreme and powerful. In day three, against the fertility cults of the day, against the idea of Mother Earth, there is no Mother Earth here. We have the Lord who creates. One scholar puts it this way, he says, whereas the ancients believed that vegetation and all reproducing processes were dependent upon procreation of the gods, the Genesis account attributes vegetation to the soil. The sensual practices involved in fertility worship reflect the pagan misconception of life's origins and renewal. No, procreation is a gift from God, according to Kenneth Matthews. So you see why God would be so angry with Israel when they end up sinning and go against other gods, these other fertility gods that, that supposedly will help them with their harvest uh, season. It's not just that they're going after other gods. It's the kind of sexual sin that's attached to the way they are worshiping these other gods, these fertility gods, that if they commit sexual acts on earth, the gods in the heavens will, will commit sexual acts and therefore we will have all that we need to eat harvest to happen. You can see how God would be so angry with his people when you read further on in, in the book of Samuel and First uh, and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. God is different. In day four, against, against the other ancient Near Eastern gods, there's a greater light and a lesser light. Now I said to you sun, moon, and stars, but look at the passage there. Look at verse 16, and God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. What lights are, is he talking about there? Why doesn't he just say the sun and the moon? He could have just easily said that. But he says what he says, Moses does intentionally, so that he would reduce and put down what others have worshipped. And he would say, almost like an afterthought, the lights that are up there, yeah, God did that. He flung them up there, and it was no problem for him. What the author of Genesis is doing is he is putting creation in its proper place. You don't worship the sun. You don't worship the moon. You don't worship the stars. You worship the one who has created them. You don't give yourselves into, in our day, into astrology and, 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 and mythical things of that nature. You worship the creator and not the creation. The fascinating part about day four is that that's where we get our normal source of light, the sun. The question that Christians have asked for years has been, how in the world did God, over the first three days of creation, how could you have day and night if there was no sun on day four? Well, I think of Revelation 22.5 here. There was a time when God was the source of light, and there will be a time when only God will be the source of our light. Revelation 22, at the end of all things, we're told, and night will be no more. Verse 5 of 22, Revelation 22 says, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. What a thought to think that that first little bit of, that we get here in creation is a tip of the hat 
I think, to remind ourselves that there will be a day where we will return to God being only our source of light. On day five, we have the birds and the fish, eagles and pigeons and blue jays and hawks and mockingbirds and so on, dolphins and sharks and blue whales and Shamu, of course. Not to mention all the innumerable, innumerable number of sea creatures that we wouldn't discover for centuries later. We probably still haven't discovered all of them. He, he creates all of them and he names them and he says it's good. But when you get to day six, the narrative begins to slow down. We have the climax of God's revelation of this passage to us. He creates the animals, but he also creates humanity. And he creates humanity in his own image to be his representatives, man and woman, male and female. And we will return to this passage next week because I believe Genesis 1, 26 and 27 has a word to say to us in our culture. Doesn't it surprise you that the first description we get about man and woman being made in the image of God the first thing we don't get is race, but the first thing that we get is the sex of humanity, male and female. And we'll look at the implications of this verse next week, if you're here. And so the Trinitarian Lord makes them in his own image. We were meant to be God's representatives on this earth. This again stands out against the other gods of Israel's day. Again, Kenneth Matthew says, in the Babylonian tradition, Man is created to alleviate the manual burden that the gods have to provide food for their sustenance. Men and women were just slaves who survived at the whim of deities. Biblical creation shows that God honors the human family and see how he elevates them. Hear me. Human dignity and human worth is a biblical idea. It was God's idea. We are not slaves just to please the gods, capricious gods up in the sky. We were marked with God's own image to be his representative, to fill this earth and to subdue it. And this is, these are these six days. So he creates all of these things. And on the last day, day seven, we get in verse one of chapter two, these words, thus the heavens and the earth are finished and all the host of them. The truth is, um, you may not know this, but the verses and chapters that we have in our Bible uh, weren't original to the actual Hebrew and Greek text of our Old Testament and New Testament. In fact, these, this wasn't completed until the 16th century. And so if you ever read Augustine, Augustine will say, he'll, he'll just start quoting scripture, but he won't say chapter and verse. And the joke has been with uh, the guy who completed this, Stephanus, in the 16th century, that he was riding his horse, and as he rode his horse, he would, he would get it right, and he would get one chapter and verse, and he, he would get that all nailed down. But sometimes he would hit a bump, and whoop, he would get it wrong. And so really, chapter 2 should really begin in our verse 4, if you were wanting to be precise. 1-1 one, one, all the way to 2-3 is a whole unit itself. And so it comes together. God creates the heavens and the earth, and then it bookends, he completes, and he rests from all that he has created. Bill Maher, who is the 
um, comedian and, and uh, talk show host is a well-known atheist. Uh, he wrote, he did a comp, put a, comp, uh, a, 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 a documentary together back in like 2007, 2008 called Religulous. You can watch it. It's, it's definitely mocking of Christianity. But one thing I've heard him say in mocking Christianity and mocking the seven days that we have here is he goes, is God so weak? Was he, did he just get to day seven and he had a rest? Was God pooped? What was, what's, the, what's the problem with that? Uh, what's up with that, that God would have to uh, just be so beat from his six days of creation? The reality is when it says God rested, it's not like he rested because he was tired, but more like a lawyer who says, I rest my case. You see the difference there? He completes his work. That's what it means to enter into his rest. Not because he is fatigued, but because he is a good creator. And when he finishes something, starts something, he finishes it. This final day is the only day where God blesses this day and makes it holy. This is the only day that doesn't pair with those first three days and those, those last three days. It's unique by itself. And this is the day where there's no mention of evening and morning, the seventh day. There's no mention of that here. Why? Because God began his rest, and he lives in that rest even until this day. Some have said that the days of creation are kind of like God building his own temple, his abode, to dwell in with humanity. And he comes and he makes his presence here. You see that in Genesis 2, about how God dwells with Adam and Eve, how he walks in the garden with them. And he is present there. And so he has finished his created work. And this powerful, majestic, awe-inspiring Lord now sustains his work. And so someone had asked me, one of you had asked me several weeks ago, is God still creating today? And I said, kind of. He has created all things, but now he sustains everything. I believe it's Colossians that talks about how he sustains everything by the word of his power. And so this is who our Lord is. If he stops sustaining, we would disappear in just a moment. But he creates and he sustains in his providence. It's majestic. It's majestic. As we close here, I, I want to point out something to you. I've spoken about the Lord. I've spoken how he created. Question, is Jesus here? Is Jesus in Genesis 1? Will we be right to see our Savior here? I, don't, I didn't see his name mentioned. Is Jesus here? Yes, I would say he is. Where is Christ in Genesis 1? It's too easy. This is why we did John 1, friends, if you're here with us in December. He creates all things. He is the word, but he is also the light of the world who has come into the darkness. He has separated the light from the darkness by the word of his power. He is the creator of all things. John 1, 2, 3 speaks about this. Colossians 1 also speaks about this, how he is the firstborn over all creation. In him, all things hold together. He has created everything. Proverbs 15, 23 I have held on closely in these, in these days. As I've sought the advice of others, as I've grown in my own understanding of leadership, I, I was talking to a brother, and he said something that was just perfect at the right moment. And I thought of Proverbs 15, 23, that talks about how a timely word spoken, man, how much of a blessing that can be for someone. What a thought to think. 
that the one who is a friend of sinners, who spoke all things into existence, is the one who can give a timely word to you, the creator of all things, and bring recreation, redemption into your own life. We spoke about this last week. He can make you born again. Do you trust this word this morning? He can give you that timely word. Christ is the creator. He is the light. He is the one who brings order. Man, and if you want to be in the image of God, you are in the image of God, but if you want that to be redeemed in your life, look no further than the image of Christ, who is the image of God himself. And then lastly, if you look at Jesus and what he says in the gospel of Matthew, is he existing in his rest today? The answer is yes. How can you have this Sabbath rest as well, friend? If you are tired and weary, it's too easy. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Sabbath rest of day seven of creation. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you have burdens this morning? Turn to the one who has established the Sabbath. Creation is God's resume, and so we can put our confidence in him. Oh, when thou, city of my God, shall I thy courts ascend, where congregations never break up, and Sabbaths have no end. Thank you for listening to Bethesda Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can find us online by visiting our website at www.bethesdahuron.com or you can find us on Facebook and YouTube at Bethesda Huron.